Welcome to Episode 3 of Disrupting Your Business. I'm your host, Stephen Burns. If you have any recommendations as to people I can interview for this podcast, please send me your suggestions to disrupt at bqe.com. I'm really interested in speaking with people who have done some unusual and interesting things which can be applied to our businesses. This doesn't mean that these ideas and experiences always have to be within a business environment. What's important is that these ideas might be applied to a business context. Today I'm speaking with Doug Sleeter, and before I give you his full introduction, let me just tell you up front what we'll be covering. We start with a bit of his backstory, including his time in the early days at Adobe, and then as an evangelist for Apple. We move on to a topic that he's championed, called Agility Trump's Ability, which really talks about the need for businesses to be more than just competent. They must really be more nimble in order to survive. And by nimble, this really isn't just an iteration we'll be talking about. It's a total rewrite. We move into the esoteric world of the blockchain, and more importantly, really what's going on with these new technologies that will require a total rethinking of how service professionals are going to operate in the future, if they exist at all. Again, please feel free to comment directly on our podcast page at Podbean or shoot an email to disrupt at bqe.com. Speaking of BQE, this podcast is made possible through the generosity of BQE software. BQE provides service professionals with business and project management software that helps drive their business. So let's get started. Today, I'm honored to have as my guest a true lion in the world of small business. I'm quite certain that for all our listeners in the accounting industry, he really needs no introduction. However, let me properly share with you some highlights about today's guest. Doug Sleeter is a passionate leader of innovation and change in the small business accounting technology world. As a CPA firm veteran and former Apple computer evangelist, he combined his two great passions, accounting and technology, to guide developers in the innovation of new products and to educate and lead accounting professionals who serve small businesses. Doug is the founder and former CEO of the Sleeter Group, an international network of accounting software consultants, and the former producer of SleeterCon, an annual conference and trade show for accounting professionals. Uh, by the way, that's way more fun than Comic-Con. Back in 2015, he sold the Sleeter Group to Diversified Communications, and that company has since morphed into AccountexUSA.com. Doug was inducted into the CPA Practice Advisor Hall of Fame, so the next time any of you are in the Indianapolis area visiting the Motor Speedway Hall of Fame, be sure to cross the street and check it out, uh, the CPA Practice Advisor Hall of Fame. Doug's been named to accounting today's top 100 most influential people in accounting for eight straight years, and he was also recognized by Small Business Trends with the Small Business Influencer Champion Award. You might think that building the phenomenally popular and successful Sleeter Group and then selling that company would be a good opportunity to sit back and relax, hit the links in Hawaii, but that has not happened. As a restless entrepreneur and thinker, Doug is always in search of the next big thing and is currently focusing on blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. And he believes these technologies are going to change virtually everything in global commerce. And I was fortunate enough to hear him give a keynote speech at the BQE Succeed conference in Las Vegas, where he made the clear case for why the blockchain 
is not only about to transform business, but our entire planet more significantly than even the internet. Uh, Doug serves on several advisory boards for technology companies and has consulted with numerous industry leaders, including Intuit, Sage, Apple, and Adobe Systems. He is the author of numerous books and courseware, but I will not list them here, but they are easily found on Amazon. So today, we are not going to languish in his past accomplishments, but we're going to keep uh, with our mission on this podcast and talk about some things that are truly worthy of disrupting your business. So, Doug, that was a long intro, but welcome and thank you for agreeing to join me today. Thank you, Steve. Great to be here. Yeah. So where are you now? Where do I catch you? Well, I am actually in Hawaii. Uh, I understand it's pretty cold in California right now, so I just uh, escaped here for January and February, and it's uh, just beautiful here. Well, glad to hear that. Yeah, it's raining in Los Angeles where I am, and uh, I'm actually grateful for it because we have beautiful white-capped mountains in the distance, and I flew down from Seattle on Monday, and it was the lushest I have ever seen California, so after many years of drought, this is definitely welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, to be honest, I'm not totally sure where this conversation is going to lead us, but I'm expecting we're going to go down some interesting paths that our listeners will find both enjoyable and enlightening. But to warm things up a bit, um, uh, let's get a little personal here. Since my own life journey through business has been one that I never could have planned, I'm always interested in understanding how successful people made their way out of childhood and into their profession or if it wasn't so uh, direct, maybe it was more indirect, kind of what happened along the way that took them uh, on their unique journey. So what could you share about uh, Doug Sleater? Yeah, well, you know, it it actually is worth noting that um, as I grew up, I was, you know, as a child, I was always kind of the road less traveled guy, the nerd, if you will. I was in the band. I was the the French horn player. And uh, I wasn't real. I, although I love baseball, I just wasn't good enough. And all the, the the jocks were, you know, that whole thing where you feel like you're just the nerd, and and because uh, that's the way the uh, environment is in typical school environments. But that uh, I think prepared me a lot for, you know, focusing really on what I wanted as opposed to what I couldn't somehow achieve. Um, and uh, I moved when I was about 14 to live with my father. So it was just him and me. And, um, and I was uh, 14, so I was just going into high school. So again, no friends, just a band, a nerd, band nerd. <laughs> and uh, that allowed me to do a lot of things to really hone a skill. I just kind of climbed into my music because there wasn't the distractions that the kids that are super social uh, have. Uh, and so I got pretty accomplished at the French horn. I was in the symphony and I was going to be a music major and went off that way. And it, it was fun. Uh, but then right around college, <laughs> I met the computer. This was, um, you know, this was 1978, 79. So Apple had just been founded. Um, the Apple II was there in my college years and kind of picked that up and, the CPM machines and things. And I just, as I began to see the possibilities around that, um, I just saw there was another path for me. And it was 
really going to be uh, a lot of the creative juices that I could have through music could be expressed through teaching computers to do something important. And so that was a big part of my upbringing and uh, kind of never went back to music after I was about 22 years old. Yeah, it's so interesting how when we first saw a personal computer, so many of us either were mesmerized, fell in love with it and embraced it or ran from it. Uh, I remember the first time, I guess we're about the same age, I was in freshman in college in 76 and they had one of these sort of mainframe type computers in a room somewhere. And I remember vowing, I will never touch a computer, you know. So it was all about, you know, humanism and stuff. And, and, And the computer just seemed just all technology and alien. And then we find ourselves later in lives evolving our entire careers around that device. Yeah. And now, I mean, if we look at it today, I mean, you can't go anywhere without your phone. Yeah. When was the last time you picked up a French horn? Oh, hmm. Uh, well, over the years, I pick it up every now and then I try to make some sound on it. And I just... <laughs> I quickly just turn it, put it away. <laughs> well, I won't ask you to pick it up and play for us today. How about that? Yeah, okay. So, yeah. Okay, so, so you, you discovered the computers, and it was sort of your, became a passion, and you were in college. So did you pursue a computer science degree? I don't even think they were around back then. Well, yeah. So um, first it was a business degree that I was in for the first couple of years in college, and that's where I get, did a lot of accounting and worked in accounting offices. Uh, but I switched my major to computer and information science at UC Santa Cruz in, in the uh, like 1979-80. And uh, so finished my degree in computer science. And then later went to Santa Clara University and did most of an MBA. But I, <laughs> I didn't finish because I got this job at Apple that was like, okay, you're leaving the office before 8 p.m.? What a slacker. <laughs> and so there just wasn't time to do both um, the Apple uh, so, gig. So you were at Apple in its early days. So how, what employee number were you? Yeah, well, actually, I remember that because it was uh, an even number, 8,600. So <laughs> I think early days, but that's still 8,000 people. I didn't go there until 1986. So I was there from 86 to 91. And, you know, that. The, the Mac was already out, mm-hmm. but it was struggling. If you think about how early on the Mac had no software, and that was, of course, the biggest issue. How are we going to get developers to develop software for this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, just before coming to Apple, I was at Adobe. So I was really early at Adobe in the number 30s or so, uh, employee number or so. And the, 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 Adobe experience was really we were one of the first developers for Apple. Um, and what we were doing was creating this cool language called PostScript, which most people today, they probably don't even talk about it, but everybody uses PostScript almost every day of their life. Mm-hmm. It's just it's embedded several levels deep in everything you do with uh, digital typography, so all your fonts and things, that's PostScript, or all your graphics that you see, no matter where they are, whether they're printed out or on your screen, all that graphics is powered by PostScript. Do, do you think there would have been the success at Adobe had there not been an Apple? Uh, no, no way. Um, because 
it was a it was actually there were strange bedfellows i mean john warnock who founded adobe and steve jobs were fast friends okay um and they were fast friends not because they grew up in any way together but because you know if steve jobs respected somebody boy that was a big deal and it was really hard to get respect from steve jobs well john warnock had that respect he came out of xerox park and we all kind of heard the stories about how Steve was kind of obsessed with Xerox and all their, you know, graphical user interface development and all. And that was maybe the at least part of the um, idea behind behind the graphical inter user interface of the Macintosh. Uh, but anyway, Steve respected John Warnock. And so there was this great relationship between the two companies and the, it was all around that laser writer, that first laser printer that ever came to the world that could do much. I mean, Canon had a laser engine before uh, the laser writer, but it really wasn't <laughs> – there was nothing to tell this laser, laser engine what to – which dots to turn on and off. Um, uh, if you think about it, you know, printing used to be simple. It used to be either those daisy wheels, you know, that would spin around like a typewriter head and 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 hit the page with an ink, mm -hmm. and so you could get all of the letters and and numbers or whatever on that daisy wheel, you know, um, uh, printer. But but they were very limited to those 200 characters or whatever we could fit on a daisy wheel. Uh, then we got the dot matrix printer and. If you remember that, that's the one that it's sort of still around today. It goes, zzz, zzz, zzz. <laughs> it's basically a matrix of dots that run across with spitting ink out on a, on a page. But you're limited there by how many dots are on that little printhead. Uh, when you go to laser, oh my goodness, you've got a page and there might be 16 million little dots that can be turned on or off um, uh, with the laser engine. So all of a sudden now we have a very complicated uh, job for the computer to tell, if you will, the printer what dots to turn on and off. Uh, and that was what PostScript solved for. It really allowed for the first time us to graphically describe, well, describe a graphical image or font or whatever uh, via a programming language. Uh, and that language was interpreted inside the printer and the, the code for that language was sent from the computer. Yeah. Um, and the biggest breakthrough was both the Apple laser writer that actually brought that technology to market uh, and then later uh, Bill Gates uh, so that was one of my things is I was, my job was to go get Bill Gates and convince him that, uh, PostScript was something Microsoft should embrace and not compete with. And thank goodness for that. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, it's funny you should talk about this. I'd forgotten about it. I did have the original Mac. I got it in 19... Uh, 81 was it what year did they come out uh, was it 84 was, oh, 84 it, it, okay I was in grad yeah. school okay thanks so I was in okay. grad school I got one because uh, my school had a special program where Apple made them affordable to students and yep. uh, I got them the printer and I recently pulled out 
of my file drawers because someone asked me for a resume of mine, and I haven't had a, to write a resume for 20, 30 years now, but I said, well, what did one of my resumes look like? So I pulled one out, and it was from my old Apple, my, my old Mac with the old mm-hmm. I guess, dot matrix printer, and they are totally crude, but they have their own yeah. kind of charm on them. And yeah. So my, sure. paper, my paper's all been yellowed. And I remember I, I did use that first Mac to write up all of my structures notes. I was taking structural course for, while I was studying to be an architect. And it's the only way I possibly could have got a, um, a distinction in any class in structures because I wrote everything on the Mac and I printed out all of the diagrams and everything. I forgot what was it, uh, Apple... Was it Apple Works? What was the what was the name of the original Apple like well, word there, processing program? And graphic? there was Mac Wright. Mac Wright. Okay. It, 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 but but you may have actually been on Lisa before. No, that. no, it wasn't Lisa. Okay. But it was it allowed me not just to type my notes, but to draw little diagrams. Okay. Yeah. And, so and Mac it, Wright, Mac Paint, and Mac Draw. <laughs> okay. Mac Paint. There yeah, you go. Cool. These are things I've forgotten all about. But uh, yeah. So my my structures professor was just astounded that this technology existed, and I had written up all the notes yeah. very nicely. So yeah. that's how I squeaked by with a really great yeah. grade. So okay. So you were working at Adobe. Basically, in a um, business development role, getting... Uh, yeah, I mean, it was before the term evangelist was really created, but I was really an evangelist there because my job was to go to to uh, to developers and get them to embrace it. So people like Microsoft, and then I don't know if you remember, Aldous was the company that made PageMaker and mm-hmm. Cork, Cork Express. Sure. And, yeah. And uh, super draw. There was all these drawing, writing, painting, imaging programs um, that uh, those are the companies I worked for or worked with as the Apple guy who I would help them get access to new versions of the Macintosh or new versions of the operating system that they could they could begin to write their software to support. Um, it was a real partnership between the hardware company and the software companies that were going to really, if if both did our jobs well, then this would succeed. Um, but it was interesting because I was Apple, and we were the big company, even though it was a tiny company relative to today. Um, and these companies were two guys in a garage, you know, with no money. And so... But but I had no real money to give them, uh, and my job was simply to convince them there was an opportunity, business opportunity for them, and that if they did things well, they could really succeed. And uh, some of those companies I just mentioned did quite well because they they listened uh, and well, I, I guess it's more than listen. No, they believed, and they put their own heart into making the Mac what it became. And uh, those were the real frontiersmen, the the people that really changed the world. Yeah, they drank some of Steve's Kool-Aid too. Yep, we all did. It's funny, I was there after Steve left and before he came back, Mm -hmm. but I, I don't think his DNA ever left that company. It was very embedded. So what happened to, uh, when did you finally leave Apple and where did you move on to? Well, it was 1991 and they were making changes in, I, I had 
after I did the evangelist role, I went on to the sales role for VARs, value-added resellers, and my job was to go and get VARs. And the company wasn't really dedicated or, let's say, wasn't committed to helping VARs with the things they needed, which is, let's say, they needed a just the motherboard. They didn't need the monitor and the keyboard and the, and the skins. Well, we didn't know how to sell just parts of our technology. It wasn't our business model. So eventually, uh, Apple just kind of killed the VAR program. And then later, even the deal dealer program, there were no resellers anymore. So I'm out and I'm thinking, hmm, what's next? And right about then, I was 94, uh, I said, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not really using any of that accounting knowledge that I have. And I really know that there are a lot of people in the world that are trying to do their bills at home, don't know, you know, they're writing checks out of their checkbook or whatever. And there's this thing called Quicken, and I think it's amazing, and I think it's changing the world because they were doing a little like Apple did. The human interface was the play. They put a check on the screen, and all you had to do was fill it out. Right. as opposed to learn a software product that does your accounting. Um, anyway, so I said, I think there's something there. Yeah. WYSIWYG <laughs> was still a phenomenon, right? Yep. So I, I thought there was something there. And I said, let's see if we can do some role there. So I created this leader group then. And the first part of the leader group was really just to go and teach. Uh, actually, I taught classes in schools, um, you know, um, adult schools and colleges. And I taught the basically the how to set this thing up, a uh, little bit of the fundamentals of accounting and what, what is it really doing, and here's what you do, and here's what the result is. Uh, then I started writing books because if you teach, you've got to write a book because you've got to have a book to give to your students. <laughs> so I never thought I'd ever write a book, but I had to to get the rest of my stuff done. But then as I switched to QuickBooks, which was almost immediately – then I wrote a full college textbook series that's still selling today. It's probably the most popular one out there. Um, so, so, so remind me, at, at how many years was Intuit running with Quicken before they released QuickBooks? So Quicken, I think, was 88 or 89. I don't know exactly that date. But QuickBooks was an acquisition by the company. Um, and then they released the DOS version, I think it was 1992. So it had actually been out in DOS for a couple years by the time I came around. But it wasn't doing too much, and nobody really heard of it. And it was just, uh, didn't have a rep, it had a negative reputation with the accounting profession. Um, so I, I kind of took it on myself to, first of all, switch all of my efforts towards QuickBooks and go teach the business owners how to use it. And then realizing that they really, they could use it, but then they could get in so much trouble uh, that they ended up needing their accountant anyway. Hey, by the way, so before QuickBooks, which it's hard to know what life was like uh, before mm -hmm. that, yeah. what were businesses, small businesses doing with their accounting? Were they leaving it just in the hands of a bookkeeper, an yeah. accountant, and a, you know pieces of paper and ledger books or was there another software program out there that they were using? Well, there were one right systems that was a big part of what I used in the accounting firm. 
back in the late 70s, early 80s, they're one-rein systems, which is basically, think of it as a book, a hard a binder, if you will, where you open it up and you put in um, transactions from top to bottom and you have uh, like a spreadsheet. <laughs> it's very much what spreadsheets were built around, uh, where there's different columns where you can categorize expenses across different columns that capture the totals of your you know, travel expense or whatever. But this is all this is all pa- this is all paper we're talking about bits. All uh, paper, yeah. Yeah. But, but no. But after that and before QuickBooks, there were things like, of course, uh, spreadsheets became a big part. Um, and then uh, Peachtree was already out. Um, that product was great. Uh, very uh, ruled the world right early on, uh, to the extent that you know, it was it was the, at least number one in the marketplace, which was still small. Uh, but Peachtree was good, but the, then it ended up going, I think, through four different companies owned it uh, and, until it finally got to Sage. And so I think it lost a lot of steam. And then Intuit was just this incredible marketing machine. And um, yeah. there, so there was also right. Great Plains. Is that yeah, Great Plains came out in the late 80s mm-hmm. on the Mac, and uh, it was good, too. Um, didn't have a lot of market share, but, it, oh, I mean, then there were other ones. Uh, Solomon was out there, and you know, but I guess for the real small business, uh, th- there weren't many uh, players. Yeah, I, the, I think my accountant, when I started my architectural firm in 93, tried to get me into Great Plains. I was yeah. just completely flummoxed by it. I ended up with MYOB, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Account Edge, I think. I forgot what it was called originally. So, but the, nobody really broke out into any kind of commercial marketing like Intuit did. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the difference. Okay. Uh, not to mention that QuickBooks really itself was, oh, I don't know. I just, I just consider it in many ways to be revolutionary in the in the space, um, there's certain things about what it does today that were absolutely revolutionary when they came out. Like, there's an account called Undeposited Funds mm-hmm. in QuickBooks, and that's an invention of the programmer that wrote QuickBooks. Because when you go to accounting school, you don't hear about an account called Undeposited Funds. Um, this the function of this account is to grab all your money that you put into the drawer before you go to the bank at the end of the day. Um, but the, the, as the, as these transactions occur on your sales for the day, there's 20, 30, 50, a hundred of the sales and they all, you're all getting money for each one of those things, but it's simply one deposit in the bank. And that's what undeposited funds helps us aggregate before we go to the bank. So it's not, uh, every sale hitting the bank account. It's just one deposit for the day. And of course, that helps us with reconciliation at the end of the month because it's, you know, your bank statement shows just the deposit for the day. And uh, when you're trying to reconcile things, you don't want to see 6,000 little tiny sales uh, that all add up to that deposit. So that was just one. Um, that's maybe too much information there. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, do you think that that innovation came about from? someone with accounting experience or was it really a programmer trying to solve a programming problem at that point? I think it was a programmer. In fact, I met the guys that did it, uh, Dan and Craig, and I talked to them about that. And they don't think it was that big of a deal, but I do 
because I know an accountant would never have come up with it because that's where I had come from. And, and I know that they saw things from a systems perspective. Um, and they just, it was just a small little thing. So I'm, I'm really overblowing a small example, but to the, I don't know, it's just kind of like Steve Jobs. I mean, it's the little things people notice. So you basically really, uh, built a business around the QuickBooks uh, product mm-hmm. line. So tell, t- just tell me briefly then about the creation of this leader network and how, how long did it really take to build this network to yeah. what it became? It's uh, So, yeah, I, I mean, I started teaching it and then started consulting with literally thousands, probably 2,000 clients um, in my local area where I would go out to the businesses and I would help them set up their accounts, put in the transactions, do the reconciliations, kind of like I was both the techie that set the software up and the accounting professional that would go and set their chart of accounts up and get their balances in and make sure everything balanced so they had a clean set of books. So I did that for like three years, I would say 97 or 98 or so, when I said, hmm, this is not scalable. I can only do so much that I can do on my own, and I know this is bigger, so what could I do? Uh, I said, why don't I teach the accountants to become consultants like I had become? I felt like I probably knew more than most of them in the world, and so if I could help them get better and better at being the consultant, uh, and they could pay me uh, membership dues to the Sleater Group, then it would be win-win because I could focus on how is the software changing? What are the best practices? I could help them learn those and uh, maybe funnel clients to them too, which, I mean, there was all those 2,000 clients we had. We, we, we turned them over to members of our network mm-hmm. so that I wasn't doing the direct consulting anymore. Um, so the, the network built slowly. Uh, because I never really had this grand idea. I didn't say, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have this huge network of consultants. It, it wasn't really about me. It was about how can I impact more people? Did you even and, build a business plan or did this sort of just back into it? What's that? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I actually did um, because I'm one of those anal guys. I always sit down and I write out the plan, and but but I never really had this this um, entrenched, you know, book of we're going to do this in this quarter, and the next quarter we're going to release that, and we're going to do that, and by the here we're going to get this revenue, and the, the, I just didn't really run the business that way. I was much more running the business by navigating what my customers needed most wanted most, reacted to most, would pay for. Um, and over time, we got much more disciplined with, you know, our own budgeting and, and, and planning. And, uh, you know, it's when we started the conference business, that's when, um, well, actually, just before conference, uh, we had we had seminars that we'd I'd go all over the country. And so that was a, got to be a somewhat of a complicated business plan because you you're doing a lot of marketing up front where you're investing in, you know, while we were putting flyers in the mail, um, which is just seems so broken today because we would put 
100,000 flyers in the mail would cost you $200,000. And you might get about 1% return, meaning sales off of those. So Sounds like a good ROI there. Yeah, but 200 grand, I mean, you can start doing the math and you realize, how can you make a business of that? And postage kept going up and, mm-hmm. um, and printing costs were high and most of your most of your flyers just drop on the floor. Nobody ever sees them. So it just is a real expensive way of doing marketing. So thank goodness for, you know, the email. Of course, then we went to faxing for, for a while, but then that became illegal quickly, so we didn't do that. Anyway, but uh, people were faxing in their, their uh, registration forms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so building a website, I think I, our first website was probably 1997 or so. It's like, wow, look at this. We can have a website and we can have a form that people can just go to and fill it out to register. This was like groundbreaking stuff. Yeah, you were on the frontier back here, but this is also probably a good segue uh, from what I'm hearing you talk Mm -hmm. about to your current soapbox, really on this Mm -hmm. concept of agility trumps ability. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, in these early days, you're looking at these opportunities or you know, situate. You know, you're not t- terribly yep. invested in any systems at this point, and you're seeing these opportunities, and you're just pivoting and you know making yep. those adjustments. So, could yep. you educate me and our listeners a little bit about uh, what you mean about this agility trumps ability, and how come it's so important? Well, I think you're exactly right. It's the it's, those are good examples of what um, what I have learned my whole life, which is. If you just do what the plan says, if you just simply iterate on today's solutions or today's processes or today's uh, points of view and just do something slightly different or the same but with a different price, then I don't think you're really adding value to the world. Um, Well, you may be adding some value because you're, you're one of the players in a marketplace that already exists. But the real people that really make a difference in the world are those who look up, look around, identify an op- a, a, a problem or an opportunity, and then say, you know what, I can, I can do something about that. Uh, so this is why I say agility trumps ability. You could get really, really good at tiny little incremental steps on the same set of processes. Or you could say, I know I can get them better, but but why don't I instead focus on how they're broken to begin with? In other words, not fixable. Uh, I see so many problems today that aren't really fixable unless we kind of blow them up and start over. Um, the first one being the internet, which is, I'm sure I'm out on a limb when I say that, but uh, I think the internet's broken. It They never built security into the model for the internet. Um, TCP IP is the protocols underneath the internet that run everything. And, um, just like PostScript, it's, it's the stuff underneath everything we do. Um, but TCP IP doesn't have a layer for security. Which, which is why you're banking, but not in the literal sense, banking on the the blockchain technology. Yeah. Well, this is where I end up heading because I think I found with the blockchain, um, a uh, a model that had it been built in from the beginning uh, to the internet, then boy, would we have an incredibly robust 
secure tool that we could all use. Uh, so the question I have now is, although I, I, and we can go and describe if you'd like a little bit here about what, what blockchain is, but before the, 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 the importance is what I think is important to talk about. And that is it, it really, I think, takes out some of the problems that we see. And the problems that we see today are um, another one of my uh, hashtags is big, bad data. We have data everywhere. And most of that data is on the internet, and um, it is put onto the internet by anybody at any time, and it might contradict other information, and it might pave new roads with new information that nobody ever knew. It's all out there. But for the human who is trying to learn or prove or do or um, – rely on data, uh, all we have is this internet. We can go to the internet, we can search, and we can find out answers. Is it verifiable data that I'm, I'm going to make my decisions based problem. on? Right. I mean, how many times have you gone to the internet and found five stories, all that, they might say somewhat the same thing, probably because they're all using each other's stuff to just repeat. Um, but many of them uh, completely disprove the other one, but there's no way for the normal human to sort all this out because our brains just aren't that big. Well, there's data and then there are narratives built around the data. Uh, so, yep. for example, uh, newspaper articles that will interpret data in a particular way that might support the theories or whatever stand the the writer might have uh right and yep. another another author gets hold of the same data but manages to interpret it in a completely different way and there's a lot written about that subject but what about sure you talk about big bad data but what about the data itself just data uninterpreted data is that yeah. a, is that a problem well i think uh well well yes and no I think data in and of itself is just is just um, inert. It has no 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 impact. Data doesn't have an impact until someone does look at it, and it's kind of like trees falling in a forest. It doesn't it really matter unless somebody's there to see it. So data is data. So fine at the at the minuscule molecular level, data is just data, um, but. I don't think that we're uh, – so data exists out there. The interpretation of the data is the first time the humans get involved, and that's where the internet is. It's always humans taking data and then interacting with it in whatever way that is. Just simply typing it in is interacting with it uh, or, gra or telling a machine to grab uh, uh, data – in a certain way. Uh, let's say, um, uh, I was just thinking about something earlier. Somebody was doing a, uh, a, a company wanted to know their, their churn rate on customers. And so, well, do you want to measure it every minute or every day or every hour or every month? What's important? And then, you, so these are decisions business managers have to make about how you're going to measure your business if you're churning you know, churn basically meaning the amount of customers that come 
for a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription or whatever. They, they sign up and then uh, they drop off, but new ones come. So now is your customer base changing, churning, or is it uh, growing? And there's a low turn and a high growth. And these are important things for SaaS software companies like, like yours that you work for. Um, so the question is, how do you measure it? Oh, well, Doug, that's okay. We can measure that. That's easy. We, we just made a decision that we're going to look at the first of every month what the, what the counts are. And then we're going to just put it on a dashboard and we're going to measure or, or run the business based on those measurements. And we're going to graph them in a dashboard. It's going to be wonderful. So there's a simple example of something that actually is pretty simple and, and doable. And, and I don't really see a whole lot of room for bad data. Well, well, let's stop there for just a second because, you know, getting that on a dashboard and maybe interpreting that or drawing a correlation between that churn rate uh, and why that churn is happening. Because I don't think data for data's sake is at all the point. I mean, if you just right. pass a spreadsheet to me, it would fold with data, unless it changes my behavior, unless it gets me to act on something, uh, the data in itself is not at all important. So right. is it still, it's still other data that has to come into the equation that allows us to paint the picture that tells right. us the reason the churn is happening is because of something, either something we did or something outside of us that's in the marketplace. Maybe we're not understanding what people want, are wanting to yep. buy and use. So Right. Well, so, okay, so you can do a dashboard of the facts, the data, mm -hmm. but you can't say, well, which salesman, uh, which support team, which um, product feature, which anything, you can't learn that from that data. Now, so far, everything we've talked about here is good data. Right. So I can imagine that you could continually go down that good data path and uh, make more decisions about it by measuring other slight things. And this is where data can really serve us, uh, and, and it's where I'm all, all for it. Bad data is most data I'm familiar with is bad. So let's say you open your iPhone or your Droid and you look at your contact list. If you look at your contact list, take a random sample of 20 records, how many of those records have the current address, phone, email, whatever? We are all nodding. We understand where you're going here. Yeah. I, yeah the other day, uh, I was asking Siri to navigate me somewhere, and it was saying, yep. taking me to this home. You know, I'm going to go to this home address. Well, it's because I had the person's address listed as home, not as work. And you don't have got five yeah. phone numbers. In fact, yeah. I have for you. I didn't know which is your yep. cell phone versus uh, exactly. you know, these other two other numbers. What, it probably says fax, doesn't it, on uh, there somewhere? Yeah, you probably still have. Don't, don't get on faxes. I had a whole <laughs> diatribe on faxes recently. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so now here's a – I tried to paint a, a, a tiny example of good data. This is a tiny example of bad data. Um, so if we were to do some scientific study on how many fax machines list, uh, exist in the, in the world, we might look at address books for fax numbers, and then we might conclude that there's a whole lot of faxes still around. <laughs> of course, our brain somewhere would kick in and say, there's some problem with this data, because you and I are pretty familiar with, with the truth. Uh, but a but a computer, a machine learning algorithm, wouldn't be able to know that that's not correct. Sure. And it would say there are a lot of fax machines in the world. 
to push back a little bit on this, though, yep. really smart data should be able to draw the correlation between the number of fax machines that might be out in the market and compare it to the fax numbers that are coming up and seeing the disconnect. Yeah, of course, out in the market is a really hard to define thing, hard to measure thing. I mean, how do you actually know that? How do you go and find that out? Um, I don't know. And, but it's certainly easy to, to aggregate a, a large sample of contact lists in Microsoft Outlook or whatever um, and, and count because that's just easy for the computer to do. But for the computer to know in the marketplace, I mean, uh, I, I don't know how to approach that. I suppose we could work really hard at that and then maybe find a data that we trust. Uh, and then correlate that and go where you're trying to go. But so, these, so how does the blockchain solve that problem? Yeah. So where blockchain comes in, the, the best way for me to um, introduce blockchain is basically instead of data ever entering into a database, all data is captured and then put into a database. And I'm using database in a loose term. It might be a table somewhere, but let's just generally say a database. Uh, data is measured somewhere, grabbed, whatever, um, acquired and put into a database. Now that data in a database, we all then go to town with. We then, we, 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 we start making these counts or you know how many fax machines and so forth. Okay, before this data could ever get entered into the database in the blockchain, the validity of that data is verified mathematically, not by a human, but by a math algorithm. So the blockchain was invented by um, Satoshi Nakamura, which is nobody knows who that is because it's the, you know, it's, it's the inventor of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a digital currency. And we can talk about that too, but, but underlying this digital currency is the fundamental technology that is so interesting, and that's blockchain technology. So the blo blockchain um, is a database. It is globally distributed across the world. Uh, and what, uh, what that means is the same data that is added to this database only after it's validated mathematically is then replicated on computers all over the world. On, and all these computers all over the world, they are owned by independent meaning non-corporate or non-government entities. Just you and I could have a, a, a node on the blockchain. And so we own it and therefore we can't, uh, we, we don't have the incentive to use this machine for our own corporate need. It's more just as a member of the network. It's kind of ties into the whole global sharing economy and uh, open source and all that stuff that has really grown over the past 20 years. So all these machines all over the world are calculating this mathematical stuff that validates whether a proposed transaction getting entered into the database, so data getting added to the database, they are validating whether this data in fact is true. Yeah, I've, and I've been to, yours included, a number of conferences or seminars that touch on the blockchain. It's always fun watching people try to explain it. <laughs> and and yeah. people nodding their heads or you know just bleary eyed. But 
yep. how does that process verify that the number that I phone number I have for you that's under a fax? I'm trying to get, take this full circle. Is, yeah, sure. Is the correct yep. for that this simple example that you threw at me about our contact database? How yep. does that blockchain solve that problem in, in the so, fax number? So my because we won't have enough time. My fast answer is it doesn't. Some program, some developer is going to have to take this technology and use its underlying theory, just like some developer took the underlying Macintosh uh, interface technology that I was promoting way back, or PostScript. And uh, with PostScript, some developer created fonts and, and graphics engines and things. But you might have said, how does this language, which all, PostScript is simply a language, how does this language solve um, taking uh, uh, type um, typesetting machines and making them digital. And the answer was, no, it doesn't. Uh, somebody had to build that. Uh, so 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 we are really talking about with blockchain is foundation technology that has the potential because of its architecture, it always goes back to architecture that really is what makes the world change. And this architecture is so bulletproof with regard to uh, uh, creating databases with accurate information, distributing them, keeping them secure from nefarious criminals or whatever that want to get in, or from erroneous, sometimes it's criminal, and sometimes it's actually errors that are introduced into a database through errant software or measuring devices or whatever that cause the cause us to believe the you know the the lies, if you will, of of uh, of things that are in this database. So let's not all get bogged down too much in it. So there is yep. this great future hope that the blockchain is going to solve the problems. Of security over the internet, and I know there's so many companies from you know the banking industry to here in Los Angeles, media, movies, music industry that are investing a lot of money into into the blockchain. Do yep. you do you think that there's going to be something on the horizon soon that's going to actually make it? Um, a ubiquitous, yeah. uh, commonplace thing, the way the internet kind of took hold? And when, did, when will that be? Yeah, that's, that's the hardest question, and it's the question, because most um, people today in technology say, oh, interesting technology, but you know what? I don't see how I can embrace it. As, well, let me just say the people I'm talking about now are the ones who are already in a business software business probably or some business that banking business whatever it is they have an an existing infrastructure and an existing process and all that stuff and they only see this blockchain thing is while interesting no use for it thank you very much so i don't think it's going to happen soon i think it's going to happen by the guys who are 20 years old right now who are coming out of college that learned about this sort of in their computer science architecture uh, courses, who then go out into the marketplace and create solutions, solving problems using the, the blockchain ideas as the fundamental underpinning of what they're going to do. Well, you you were 
back earlier about the agility thing and talking about the sort of the tools that we use or doing incremental change that this we're not going to get right. there so something totally disruptive something transformative yep. has to become clearly obvious yep. to people it's you know like uber you know something like oh my gosh that makes it simple and easy so somebody's going to solve the puzzle of blockchain right. and bring it to the masses at some point well not to not to totally disagree with that it's not about blockchain it's because because you might have said way back oh tcp ip is going to be it someday well no i mean yes it is but it only is because everybody developed things with it as the underpinning it wasn't like bring it to the masses it's just going to be kind of like the air that's breathing that we breathe later uh, that maybe that's a bad analogy it's it's the the integrated circuits of the future it's the it's the software it's the compilers it's the TCP IP protocols. It's one of those kinds right. of things. So you're never going to buy something. We're all blockchain. banking on some 14 <laughs> year old kid right now who's going to have figured out this because he's not burdened by all of our a priori conceptions right. about how the world world operates. Uh, yep. All very interesting. We've already hit the hour, uh, getting close to the hour, I should say. And I wanted to sure. uh, kind of ask you a question or two about something completely different. Does that sound okay? Or is there something else yeah. you wanted to? Sure. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, that's good. Because yeah. I think you can tell a lot about people by the books they read. And you don't mm -hmm. need to be old fashioned books don't have to be literally pieces of paper, they, you know, digital books out there, audio books out there. So I'm kind of curious if right. you might share with us maybe one of the most important books maybe you've read in your life that may have impacted you it doesn't have to do anything sure. about what we just talked about but it did set the stage and sure, then, yeah. you know maybe what you're currently reading or what you might recommend and then lastly i guess what to mm -hmm. you makes a great book yeah yeah well some of the really important things in my readings in my life have been things like oh i don't know i'll just pull out one about a personal thing is the secret you know basically uh learning how positive thinking really um, is is uh, much more than just simply uh, some people think of it as ignoring the negative. That's not what it's about. It's about actually help having the world conspire to help you achieve what you what you dream of and and staying positive in that process. Uh, so it's a it's a great book, and I would say everybody should read it because it's about yourself and your own outlook. So I, I'm life. unfamiliar with it. Who who wrote that, if you recall? Aronda Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a classic, I guess, classic. It's been out for, when was it? Let me see if I can get the, the date. 2006, maybe, is when it was first first released. And there's even a movie around it now. It, you know, it's funny because uh, it's also, I, I listen to the movie, It's it almost sounds hokey. You know how it's almost hokey meaning... There's no science to this. This is just what people think about. Anyway, I, I just say read it and make your own conclusions. Okay. Uh, anything else? Is that What are you reading right now? Well, um, let's see. Well, two, two others in, the, in sort of that's the, the personal. The two others that go to hand in hand to me is 1984 by George Orwell and uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Uh, those kind of go hand in hand, and it's sort of ties into sort of society and where we're going and, and uh, governments and those sorts of things. And I just think they're important to kind of 
Maybe you read them in high school right. or maybe they were assigned, but you didn't really read them. I just think they're really, really poignant. Yeah, they're definitely uh, top of mind over the past couple of years. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. I'm reading, um, okay, for the professionals, all the professions. So from doctors to accountants to lawyers to architects, uh, the trusted advisor uh, is uh, by, by David Meister, M-A-I-S-T-E-R. Great book in terms of how to develop trust with your clients. Okay. Um, and, and then going hand in hand with that is the future of the professions, which just came out a couple years ago. And it paints a pretty dismal picture for all professionals. Uh, uh, you could is, look at is it. Is this because picture. of... Uh... Uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and virtual and augmented yes. reality and how it's going to impact us. Is that, that's okay. Yeah. It's basically, yeah. Saying well, automation in the, in the broad sense is taking away so many of the things that all of the professions have done manually or themselves. Um, you know, like uh, Watson is out there diagnosing cancer way better than all the doctors put together. Right. Uh, so that's what does this mean for the profession of medicine and, and diagnosticians? So, again, fascinating to just read through that. And every professional, no matter what stage you're at, just want to think about how does technology kind of change my future? This is absolutely about being agile because I always knew it was changing. But what I did is I kept looking up and say, how can we use the technology to actually improve our results? as opposed to have it take our jobs away. Well, yeah, so, you know, yeah. maybe you can be our cliff notes or monarch notes or whatever your your cheat is at the moment, but I, I do understand Watson and that kind of technology is affecting radiology, as an example, because there's no way sure. any doctor can have a full database of all of that, uh, you know, those, those scans yeah. and, and, and make the correct call knowing... You know, was the call right. made two years ago with somebody the right one? But the, the database can. So, is the is, is the bad? Is there bad? Is, what's the good news uh, on this discussion? For <laughs> let's take let's just take radiologists for, as an example who who've tried to fight back with their own kind of swarm technology to to beat out Watson, but so which won't won't do right. it because even if you get five doctors on a call, you know, around the world looking at a scan, it can't beat a, something that can analyze. A bazillion images in a, yeah. in, a, in a half a second. Yeah. Well, as we get more and more granular, like your picture you just painted, there maybe isn't good news. Uh, the, the best outcome, though, is for those five professionals to say, yeah, my boat is sinking. What is the next boat I can float in this that, that takes advantage of all my skills? And, you know, certainly in accounting, it's move toward the advisory advisory skills um, and, and relationships as opposed to the manual uh, data. So skills. we're going to ask these uh, people who are very comfortable in the, the, the little corner office yep. with their green visors to become good, good well, human skills and learn how to schmooze. Yeah, and, this you know. is, you're hitting exactly on the problem because the truth is some humans do want to just sit in back and, and crunch numbers. And uh, so, okay. That uh, 
you know, the, those people will truly be disrupted if they can't find a way and use the secret to kind of imagine a life that, that they would enjoy and, and accelerate at. I mean, my, my prediction or my thesis is that most people got into those jobs because that's the way they went to school to do. And that's what the school told them, uh, made them experts in. And they heard when they were in school that there was a job. And so then all they want to do is go and have a job and then go home. And, and you know, that's most of how we were raised. And everything around that whole model is changing, not in ways that are all bad, uh, but if, if you think that you can keep the world the same way it always was, then you're not being agile. You're just sitting there trying to improve your ability. Meanwhile, everybody's being agile and disrupting. Yeah, I think the personally the the panacea to all of these professions is to get outside their comfort zone, expose themselves yep. to ideas and anything that is challenging to their comfort. Uh, I was. You know, I think I talked to you once about Jeff Hoffman, who was the founder of Priceline, and you know he mm-hmm. he always talked about every day get out of your domain, spend twenty minutes a day to you know read th- you know newspapers and and, and and sections that you you know if you pick up the sports section every day now you know pick up the arts and culture section right if that's not your comfort zone right. and read books that might be challenging to you uh, because they're going to expose you yeah. to ideas that can be brought into where you are comfortable, but see it in a new way. Yeah. Because, because yeah. the, the technology is moving to such a place where most of us, most of our services can be done more efficiently through non-human means. And so we, we need to bring something new to that profession that those, yeah. com- those things won't be able to do. Which precisely makes the whole point, you know, it's just... Just keep looking up, look around. I guess I better start taking dance classes. That's my <laughs> my comfort zone is challenged terribly. Uh, well, Doug, uh, I can't thank you enough for all your time today. I'm uh, wondering if people wanted to reach out to you and continue a conversation. Uh, how can they reach you? Uh, yeah, well, I now have my sleeter.com, www.sleeter.com page back. Um, so you can go there and there's, there's links to my uh, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, but it's pretty much Doug Sleater everywhere. Thank you again, Doug. It's been great talking to you. I hope you next time you're in Los Angeles, you can come by and visit us here. Okay. Well, have a good day. So there you have it. Thank you, Doug Sleater, again, for spending the time with me today, and I hope you all enjoyed that. And if you need to reach me at all, don't forget, email me at disrupt at bqe.com.